So we find ourselves here on this retreat, engaged in the practices of meditation in different forms. And there are many ways we can consider and understand what it is that we're doing, what it is that we're engaged in. And one of the ways we can understand it is or express it as a, a conscious choice, a conscious orientation towards the possibility of freedom. And in this, an undertaking of a willingness to release ourselves and release our mind's tendency to hold on to that which perhaps does not serve us most fully. And so we could understand the practice of meditation as in many ways the practice of of letting go, of relinquishment and renunciation. And we can come to a retreat like this, very understandably, with a, a wish to, to, in a way, to learn how to do it. How to make something particular happen that we might have heard about or read about or perhaps experienced in the past. The recent past or sort of the, the distant past. And it's completely understandable that we come here, in a sense, wanting results. We don't want to come here and just leave the same as we arrived or have had no effect on our life or the world, that would be pointless, it would seem. And that that natural way in which we might find ourselves drawn to or imagining a sense of particular experiences that would be beneficial or wholesome has its place. It's understandable, it's okay. And yet, it's also important to hold that in a, in a larger vision of something possible for us that isn't about a particular experience or mastering a particular technique. And it's this possibility that we have as human beings to awaken our lives, to directly and immediately know for ourselves what it is that's possible for us as human beings. There's a a saying that, in some ways it's rather simple and perhaps obvious, but I also find it quite profound, that goes something like, if you keep going in the direction you're headed, that is where you're going to end up. And it's, it's kind of, well, that's obvious, isn't it? But at another level, if one reflects on it, oh, so where am I orienting my life towards? Because whatever is my primary orientation or orientations, in a certain way, that's what it's going to become. And this question of, you know, what is the direction of my life? Where are we heading? This is a a critical question for us both personally and also collectively as a as a community, as a society, as a, a shared body of humanity. If we look into the world, we, 
we see so many things of, I imagine for you, certainly for myself, of, of deep concern. In so many ways expressed in the, the, the multiple crises of our time of, of climate and ecological and social injustice. And we see the greed and the disconnection that drives so much activity in the world and sometimes in ourselves. We can also see the, the tragedy of, of, of conflict and violence, again, born of disconnection and born of, of hatred that plays out in our world. And sometimes we find, of course, arising in ourselves in different ways. And it's not easy to see these things in the world it's not easy to see these things in ourselves. But it's important that we let ourselves be touched because this, I think, is what gives us the sense of impetus for that change of direction, of that orientation towards what is most important here. And so looking into our hearts, we can see at times distress, at times pain, with regard to particular conditions of the world, with regard to particular conditions of our own lives, our own hearts, minds, bodies, our communities. And within that, there can often be a sense of a of a sense of a limitation or a sense of somehow being bound or constrained or not really quite knowing how or even if there is a possibility beyond this. And yet, at the same time, a quieter place, perhaps, in our, in our hearts and our minds speaks to us, calls to us, invites us to, to listen to its perhaps quieter voice that says, yes, something more is possible than what has been so far discovered or known or revealed. Something more is possible. And this is really at the heart of the Buddha's teachings and the practices we're engaged in. The sense of of possibility. I remember when first encountering these teachings and practices traveling in Asia, the, the path I was on was, had taken me to India. Um, and uh, on my way, I was going to actually to visit or to meet, in fact, my grandmother who lives in Calcutta, who was, well, then was living there as Bengali. And on the way there, I, I found a little bookshop selling spiritual texts, and I'd never had a book about meditation or Buddhism or actually anything particularly spiritual. But having done my first retreat, it was like I was really interested. And I found this book by a, um, a, a German Sri Lankan monk, Nyanaponika Terra, as he was, which means elder. So his name was Nyanaponika. He was an elder. And it was called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And one of the phrases quite near the beginning of the book has stayed with me over the years and decades. I find myself coming back to it again and again. Um, I've probably shared it in this room before, but it stays fresh for me. And it said, he said, 
And I'm just going to adjust the translation because the text reads, this mind. And when we hear mind, most of us, we tend to think this thing up here. In the teaching, in in terms of the language that he was speaking from, I think heart-mind is a better translation of the word that the Buddha used, chitta, for this sensitive feeling and responsive, we could say organ. It's not just the, the mental functioning but has the resonant heart functioning as well. And so I'm going to translate it, with apologies to the Anaponica, or his translator. Um, This heart-mind is bound all over, and yet can know freedom, here and now. And just in those few words, really, the sense of seeing the ways in which we're bound, limited, constrained, held within patternings, within conditions, within circumstances. And at the same time, this possibility of freedom, here and now. And of course, it's not just this heart-mind that's bound, but this interconnected human world, this collective field of, of human life is bound by craving and by aversion, by greed and hatred. And it calls for a change of direction. It calls to us. I think we feel that. And at the same time, we often can feel like we don't quite know how or or what is the way to respond to this. And in the very same way that we might experience that sense of what to do with this life? The Buddha encountered that sense of concern, of interest, of, of what's possible here? What can be done? His recognizing of the experience of, of what we talk about as dukkha, the word he used, dukkha, which is expressed in different ways we can understand it in terms of suffering, that which is unsatisfying or that which is hard to bear. And we know this as an aspect of life. It's not the whole of our experience, of course. But something about just really bowing to, oh yes, this is an aspect of what is here. For us all. And really acknowledging that is something important. Not as the final definitive statement of our human possibility, but as an acknowledgement of where, at least some of the time, for probably most of us, but maybe all of us, we, we know that that's what we're in contact with, or that's where we are. And the Buddha understood this, and Catherine touched on this, I think, on the opening evening talk. This recognizing that a lack of understanding Avidya, like an unawareness, an uncomprehendingness of the fundamental nature and principles of how our life is and how it actually works and what is possible within it. Through not understanding this, we are entangled and we are, it seems, 
hostages to the forces of reactivity, the unconscious and habitual patternings of craving and aversion that play out in the forms of greed and hatred. And and these the Buddha saw very clearly as conditions in our hearts and in the world. But equally he saw and he spoke to the possibility of freedom, the release from this dukkha, this suffering that is hard to bear, that leaves us with a sense of unfulfillment or not feeling or not being actually met in what it is is most important to us. So you can say like not satisfied. And the path that he offers, that he taught, that he explored himself and that he shared with others, contemporary seekers who like himself were interested and were dedicated to finding out what was possible for them. Sharing with them this understanding that he came to of the way life arises, the way experience arises, the patterns and principles and the the particularities of its lawfulness. As Nikki mentioned, we were talking about taking refuge in the Dhamma, the laws of the natural world, as well as the teachings of the Buddha, that these, when understood, offer the possibility of profound transformation. Not by themselves, although helpful as understandings, but through the aligning of our lives, our choices, our intentions, our actions, with that understanding with these profound wisdoms. And within the the many frames of reference and reflection and understanding that the Buddha offered and that we can usefully pick up and consider and engage with, very much at the heart and the centre of this body of teaching is the the invitation to contemplate and to see the way in which attachment and the entanglement it creates is the basis of an experience of dukkha, of suffering, of limitation, of bondage. That we are not without the capacity to transform. And that the capacity we have as human beings for letting go, for release, for relinquishment, this is the basis of freedom. And of course, something like renunciation, again, we we touched on this when talking about the cell phones. It's... It's not popular in our culture. It's kind of associated with deprivation and a a sense of, or or a a sort of a puritanical rejection of enjoyment, of pleasure, 
of ease. And it's really important to understand that this was not what the Buddha was suggesting. There's a place for enjoyment. In fact, joy is one of the qualities of heart that he, he lifted up as beautiful, as noble, as divine. And enjoyment and ple- pleasure equally has a, has a real place in finding the blameless pleasures of what happens for our heart and our mind when it's settled in deeply into the body can be exquisitely pleasurable, but not in a way that leads us to suffering, to becoming entangled with it. So renunciation, letting go, relinquishment, correctly understood as actually the basis of rest, of ease, of inner peace. The willingness to give up what might be easier, comfortable, familiar, or sometimes more superficially pleasurable, or entertaining, or stimulating. To, re- to no longer prioritize that, because it, to do so gives the opportunity for something more. It's like for all the real value and use of many things we do in our lives, in our days, coming on the retreat, putting these things out. We're not just putting down our cell phones. We're putting down so many different things. And one of the things it gives us is the gift of space. And so much of, at times, my experience, and I imagine yours, we wish for space, for more space. But the tendency is, as soon as we get some space, we fill it up with things that will be good or nice. You know, the idea of, a, I was going to say holiday, but I think you say vacation here, don't you? So, you know, the, the vacation ideal is full of fun things to do. And most people I know who have one like that need to recover from it afterwards. I mean, maybe that's a fine way to do it. But there's something that perhaps was a little bit there for us already this morning in the, in the letting go and the release of the cell phones where so many of you, and it was wonderful, we were pleased by the weight of the basket. Not that we take it too, too personally. There's no competition amongst retreats to see who can get the fullest basket. Don't worry. Um, but the staff in front office did comment on it. So. <laughs> And equally lovely, to the kind of just coming and honouring the principle of releasing, of letting go, of giving up, where one may not have, for many good reasons, chosen to do that. But nonetheless, the acknowledging of this, it's striking how much a sense of uplift that brought. And of course, there was the chanting, and that's nice too. Well, your chanting maybe. I, I don't know. My chanting might not be so nice. Um, but I enjoy it. And yet, there's something more. There's something uplifting and brightening about the sense of relinquishment, of letting go, of putting things down. I recently heard an account of a a, a very dear friend and colleague and teacher of mine also, who I am fortunate to have had contact with over almost 30 years, uh, Ajahn Suchito, who's an English Buddhist monk who's based in uh, 
in a monastery in the UK now. Um, and he was teaching a retreat at Guy House, the retreat centre um, where Catherine and I live near and uh, closely involved with. And there was this... One of the, one of the things about the monastic life is that they they give up being in control of a lot of things that for us would be important to be in control as a training, as a practice. And one of the things is they only get to eat what other people give them. And they, depending on different practices, but for some, they have this one bowl in which they receive their food and they get all their food in that one bowl. And so on this particular occasion, there was um, a very nice sort of fruit and custard being served together with the um, you know, the rice and dal and salad. And Ajahn Suchito, you know, just invited, could you just, without words actually, just put it all in there. And so there was this really nice fruit and custard being put on top of the dal and salad dressing. And, and someone who was watching just couldn't bear it and said, what are you doing that for? It's so nice. And you're mixing them up. It's going to be horrible. And he responded, he said, if you knew what my experience was, you would understand why I do this. And he didn't elaborate. (laughs) But my sense of what it is to have chosen to say, I'm not going to express a preference with this. I'm just going to let it come. It's all going to be just as nourishing when it's mixed together. And the the sense of ease in the heart when one just lets go into this is this is the mixture today. This is how lovely we've got, you know, stewed fruit and custard, yum. And how lovely we've got salad with salad dressing and dal and rice as well. And it's all in my bowl together. Now, the uh, the hardcore version of that practice, I understand, is where one takes one spoon and mixes it all together before eating it. Now, I don't know if he was doing it that day. But, again, that could sound like I'm trying to punish myself by having no fun with my dinner. Or it might be, and this is what I think he was pointing to, it's like, oh, there's actually a deeper happiness in relationship to things like food and pleasant tastes than comes from simply trying to maximise the pleasurability of it. So it's helpful sometimes just to reflect on how compelling it can be or how, how much compulsion there can be in our conditioning, in our habits, in our familiar ways of relating to experience. And what might be possible when we begin to let that go, which doesn't necessarily mean that we don't feel the pull for more pleasurable mealtime sensations, but that we understand that we don't want to orient our life around trying to maximize them. So when they come, we can enjoy them. And when it's not that, there's something else that's possible. And so there's different ways we can look at, as I said, what we're doing here. And one of the ways we often 
will perhaps unconsciously tend to relate to the process of meditative exploration, the kind of practices we're engaged in, is somehow trying to find some aspect of it that we can measure, that we can say, there's more of this that's good and there's less of that which is not good or not wished for. And I'm not sure that's the most helpful framework. There is something useful about, of course, noticing as wholesome qualities arise. And equally, noticing when where less wholesome qualities are present without judging them as such, but just saying, oh, okay, that might be here. But I think... It's really useful to be clear that the value of this practice is not found in what it feels like when we're doing it. Because so much of what we say when, you know, good practice, or actually good anything, so easily that becomes equated with, does it feel good? Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't feel good. I like it when it feels good as much as anybody else, I'm sure. But that in itself isn't the primary measurement or the primary quality to be concerned with it would seem to me and perhaps more fundamentally important for us is what are we able to let go of and how fully and deeply are we able to let go this if we have any measure for practice I think is perhaps one of the more useful ones I'm not suggesting you need to be measuring that at all. In fact, I think the best thing to do is to get out of the measurement game entirely. But because as human beings we tend to be quite committed to measurement and comparison and evaluation based on that, as a, as a frame or as a value for this, I think that sense of what's possible, what's the capacity for letting go, is perhaps one of the most useful And so in this way, we can see this aspect of practice, of of cultivation. Bhavana, the the Buddha used the word bhavana. He didn't use a word that really translates as meditation, to be honest. That was a sort of a word that got kind of brought in by the Victorian English Christian translators of the early Buddhist texts in the 19th century. And it's fine, because it's what we use, and it's common enough, but really the Buddha, what the, the word that the Buddha used, bhavana, most usefully translates as cultivation, or even more precisely, bringing into being. Bringing into being. That sense of something being born, developed, grown. And so the question is, what do we want to cultivate? What do we want to bring forth? And the invitation here is really to see from our own experience what is it that most deeply meets our heart's longing? What is it that may allow that to grow? Can I practice generosity? rather than selfishness? Can I practice?
practice kindness rather than ill will? Can I practice contentment and gratitude rather than dissatisfaction? And framing like this, to practice means to seek to orient towards these possibilities. It doesn't mean we won't experience craving or ill will or dissatisfaction, but that's an experience. Experiences happen, of course. But the attitude we take towards it isn't an experience. How we choose to orient towards it, that's where we as human beings can transform. Not necessarily the content of the experience, but the context of it, the atmosphere in which it emerges, and allow, through that, orientation. The very vibration of our experience to change, to transform. So I think that it's, again, quite common that we, despite that we're here on a meditation retreat, and we might know something about this, all of us, I'm sure, that in a certain way we're very conditioned by the tendency towards what I would call materialism, which is sort of the idea that there's a something to get that's going to do it for me or a certain set of conditions that will fulfill me that happiness and satisfaction comes through this and there's three kind of ways that expresses three levels we could say one is getting possessions having more things now I imagine that you've already seen through that the kind of the untruth in that imagination and that idea that having more things is going to fulfill you. Why would you come and spend 10 days on a retreat where you're not going to get any things? You know, there's New Year's sales, they're going to all happen and we're going to be here and not get to buy any of them. You know, it's like, great. Again, I think we've seen that. You don't need to hear from me on that. Perhaps more subtle and in a certain way, pervasive or equally pervasive is the sense that having certain experiences will do it for me. And for meditators, this is something, of course, understandably attractive. It's like, oh, there's these meditative experiences that I've read about, that I've heard about, that I've had, that my neighbor appears to be having, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And that is what I'm here to get or to have. And that is somehow going to do, that, do it for me. And this is something, I think, really to hold with some caution and care. And perhaps even more fundamentally challenging is the sense, the the materialistic orientation that suggests that our fulfillment is through becoming someone or something other than what we are. And the images and models that our worlds and our communities and our families sort of give us 
that we endeavour to somehow fulfil of who we should be or what we should be that is different than who and what we are. When we have this view, experience is going to fulfil me or it will be the basis for determining who I am when we identify with experiences. We use them to tell us who we are. I have this kind of experience. I'm, I'm experiencing anger. I'm an angry person. Or I'm experiencing bliss. Oh, I'm a blissful person. Or simple terms. We, we take the raw material of experience and we attempt to frame a definition of ourself out of it. Now, we'll talk more about some of these dynamics, I'm sure, over the days. But in terms of what I'm speaking about here, the effect of this is that the experiences we're having, the particular content of the experience, becomes really important. And it becomes either the solution or the obstacle, according to whether it fits in to the sense of what I think I should be experiencing or who I think I should be. Does that make sense? So experience, the content of experience, not so much the fact or the process of it, but the content of experience becomes really important. And the tendency to seek fulfillment, seek satisfaction, seek gratification in and through or seek confirmation of ourselves in and through experience is really, really powerful. But it doesn't work. We never come to the end of a process of seeking fulfillment and satisfaction or confirmation through experiences. Because they can't offer that to us. And yet there's something very human about the way in which we look for that in so many ways. I've probably, again, shared this story here before, but it it remains with me, sort of indelible in my, sort of viscerally etched into my my heart and mind of a a time when I was on a retreat, sitting in a group retreat as you are here. And the meal that was served was one of my favorites. Lasagna was served at the retreat center. And it was like, oh, excitement and... Breathe out, yeah. Okay, just you know, equanimity. No, you know. So there's this thing about getting to the front of the queue without looking as if you're trying to get to the front of the queue. And then this sign that says moderate portions, and it's like, how big a portion can you take and still be moderate? You know, it's like these are difficult questions for a practitioner sometimes, certainly for me. And then taking this, and and as soon as I tasted it, oh, it was really good, and immediately. Well, there'll be enough for seconds. <laughs> and so I started shoveling this beautifully, carefully, lovingly made lasagna in way too quickly. And I wasn't actually thinking about how nice it was or mindful of the flavor anymore. I was worried about whether there'd be any more. And I was anxious because I thought there probably wouldn't. And consequently, I didn't notice that I was actually getting really full while finishing off this first not very moderate portion. <laughs> And by the time I finished it, I realized I didn't want any more. 
I didn't feel very good. And I hadn't even enjoyed it. But somehow, I'd imagined that this was going to make me happy if I could just get more of it than I already had. And it's just so, aren't we so like that? Even when something lovely comes to us, so easily we're intoxicated by the wish for more or the wish to sustain it. Even what's lovely, delightful and uplifting requires us to hold it skillfully for it not to become the basis for more entanglement. So the Buddha spoke of this when he said that attachment, this taking hold of, this wanting, it leads to suffering, to dukkha. But it's really important that we distinguish here what the Buddha was speaking about and what we also speak about in in sort of our modern sort of more, I'm trying to think what the word is, in our, in our world, when we speak about attachment, it also is used to describe in psychological terms the really important connection and bonding relationship that's formed between an infant and their primary parenting adult or adults. And it's something really necessary for a healthy and balanced development. And nobody gets a perfect version of it, but but in that sense, that's very different than what the Buddha was speaking about. And so attachment, we need to understand that it's the unskillful pressure that we place upon our experience, our world, or ourself to conform to our idea or our fantasy of our wanting and our desire, our preference or our idea of what should be. And I think of it like this unharmful attachment is like this. It's sort of like two things. It's like grabbing hold of something and becoming entangled with it. Whereas we can simply come into contact with something and be close to it, very close. These two hands, touching, but not entangled, not bound. And part of what we learn and practice is to, what is it to come really close, to be really close, but to not be bound by our experience. So we're not talking about holding back from it so we don't get entangled with it but to come really fully into the body, the field of experience, this breathing, living, vibrating body, sitting, walking, standing, and and the activities of the day. To come fully into this. And really the bottom line, if, if taking hold, if manipulating, controlling and avoiding or sustaining experiences was going to do it for us, it would have done it by now. We've all had plenty of them. 
We've all had plenty of them. The idea that there's going to be another one, a different one, a better one. Well, it may be. I can't, I'm not making any absolute statements here. I don't mean to be anyway. But I don't think it's that likely. The word the Buddha used to describe this particular phenomena, attachment that leads to suffering, to dukkha, is upadana. And it's got a really lovely sort of, I guess, etymology. Um, I'm not an expert on such things, but rely on sort of scholarly friends who have explained them. Um, And upadana breaks down as dana, it's the word for attachment, dana, which many of you will know, I imagine, generosity, kindness, or particularly a sense of giving, not kindness. I don't know where that came in. Kindness is good, but it's not what I meant to say. Um, and a, in this, adana, a is a, a negative, a negator, so it's non-generosity, and up is an intensifier, so up adana, intensified non-generosity. Upadana, taking hold of, clinging, attachment. It's quite the opposite of the open hands of offering, of giving. And it's lovely with some of you, the, the instinctive response, many beautifully bowing with this kind of offering and this respect. And, and some of you was coming to the, um, to the relinquishing of your phones and devices. And, and the, it, just see the open-handedness of the gestures that spontaneously came for some of you. And that, that sense of, oh yeah, that open-handedness somehow speaks to us of this, of offering, of letting go. And detachment is the opposite of that. That tightness, that gripping that we experience as a, as a tightening of our, not just our hands as such, but the heart, the mind, the body, are subject to that force impacted by that tendency and that pattern. And so, we see that while our attention turns to experience, and this is what's here, and we're talking about different aspects of our experience as the the basis for establishing attentiveness, connection, sensitivity, openness, kindliness, through bringing our attention to bear in and with the body. And we're very much inviting that as a, not as a looking at it from a distance, but actually being right in there and with it. Sensitive and awake to it. In that, in that experience, we see, we start to notice inevitably that our experience is fluid. That it's touched and conditioned by everything around it. And that as things and the conditions change, so too our experience changes. And that in that, it is not something that can be found apart from what it is within. Which is a way we can understand it. It's, it's empty of any 
independent self-existence. It's connected to what is around it. And it doesn't stay fixed because of that. Because everything is in motion. Life is fluid, arising and changing. And because of this, experience in and of itself cannot offer us anything that is permanent. Because it is not itself that. And this is something the Buddha asked us to contemplate, to reflect on, asked his companions and his followers in his time. If it's so that things are changing, can they give you lasting satisfaction? And check and see, first of all, are they changing? Yeah, seem to be. And then if so, could they give you lasting satisfaction? Well, no, they couldn't, could they? And this is the one of the fundamental truths and teachings the Buddha offers. But it's really important to understand, and this isn't so often emphasized, it equally means that experience in and of itself cannot obstruct your happiness and satisfaction. It's neither the solution, but by not being the solution, it's also not the problem. It's simply the territory or the raw material of our path, of our life, of our journey. And the possibility for true satisfaction, for deep happiness and fulfillment, can be known, can be revealed, can be embodied. Always and inevitably in the immediacy of our living experience, right here and now. Not in an idea that something will do it for me, or something is somehow preventing me from that. But what is it to be immediate? To be here in an unmediated way. Immediate in terms of here and now. Not in the past. Letting our... I mean, the past has so much value for us. We can learn so much from it. But we can also spend a lot of time lost there. And likewise, we need to make plans at times for the future and organize things. None of us could have even got to this, you know, into the meditation hall without some organizing for the future. Ringing the bell, turning up, not being at the far end of the loop at four o'clock. You know, it takes some organization. But we can spend so much time lost in the future in a way that doesn't serve us. And coming back to here, to this, to something that seems like it maybe initially doesn't offer that much to us. The simplicity and the immediacy of being here and now. There's something unmediated, something immediate in this. Unmediated, where there's nothing between, where we're not standing off from our experience, evaluating what it can do for me or what it's doing to me, to the degree to which it's a solution 
or a problem. And this takes time, of course, naturally, understandably, and it's a, a process, an unfolding process that we're not in control of, but which we can profoundly influence by our willingness to meet what's here, to work with, to hold and to handle our experience and learn what's helpful. So we, we spoke about sort of helpful responses with sleepiness, or we, we'll, we'll talk about you know helpful responses to reactivity when we when we notice the experience that we're not easy with, being able to just make some space for it and go oh as in you know physical pain but equally emotional reactivity, just oh okay this is here, can I make some space with this? maybe there's something that will help with it. But whether or not there's something that will help in terms of easing intensity, that there's a sense at the same time of, okay, this is what I'm offered right now to be with, to meet, to allow myself to come more fully into what it is to be right here. And to let go of the idea we have of getting somewhere or something or becoming someone other than what we are or where we are. And this is an act of profound self-compassion, not deprivation. There's a, a joy that comes naturally from releasing the contraction and the tightening. And one of the reasons it's so helpful to notice to be using our bodies as a, as a central field and frame for our practice is they actually tell us what's going on. We can notice when we're tightening up. I say, like, oh, okay, there's some, some reactive pattern, some holding or some aversion or grasping taking place. It's like, oh, can I just let myself breathe with that? Can I feel that? Can I invite that? to begin to soften without trying to force it to go away, which would be just another form of contraction and reaction. And seeing that we're not rejecting the experience that's difficult or challenging or patterns of reactivity. It's not about judging them, but seeing that this doesn't It doesn't serve to be giving energy to either the amplifying of that reactive pattern or the attempt to somehow suppress or stop it from happening. More useful just to notice, ah, this is here. And if it's difficult with kindness for oneself, oh, it's not easy for you here, we say to ourselves. It's not easy for me with this. And to see that it takes us time. It takes us time. So can we give ourselves some space? It seems so important to, you know, we've got, we've got time here, as well as the sense of immediacy. The sense of, we don't need to rush. At the same time as being wholehearted, we don't need to rush. Not needing to evaluate our practice. There's a, there's a lovely story of a very... Um, 
a practitioner who'd been practicing for about 10 years, uh, sorry, 20 years, I believe, and had the very precious opportunity to go and have a meeting with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and was very excited to go and speak to him about his, his meditation. And and he, he said, you know, he went to His Holiness, sure he would have some good advice, good advice for him. He, he always felt as maybe you have had a sense if you've had any contact with or seen anything. I mean, he's a sort of very heartful and uh, wise human being. And he, he told him about these various difficult things happening in his meditation, how he'd been practicing for all these years and, you know, 20 years along and he still had these struggles. And his holiness apparently responded to him. He, he looked at him, smiled and said, yes, it's difficult, isn't it? It's like that in the early years of practice. <laughs> And it's just, it's just like it just releases a whole load, doesn't it? It's like, oh, the first 20 years of the early years. Oh, great. And we see it's just a view that takes, that forms around the idea of where we should be based on some idea of time. So can we be interested in what's happening? Directing our attention to this field of bodily experience. Noticing and so far as we're able to releasing ourselves when our attention becomes captured by reactivities or by the sort of the, the looking for something more entertaining. And just coming back to this, sustaining attention, seeing what's possible for us, letting go of the pressure we place upon ourselves, upon our experience, upon our world, and seeing what may be offered to us when we come to each moment with our hands open, willing to receive, willing to be touched, willing to care for this life. Moment by moment. Ajahn Chah was a much-loved meditation and dharma teacher in Thailand in the 20th century. And he, he said once, let go a little and you will have a little peace. Let go a lot and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace and natural freedom. This is the invitation of our practice. Let's see what we might discover. Right here, right now, in this moment and through these days, the heart of life is just as it is. Luminous, mysterious, peaceful, dynamic, radiant and unbound.
So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we know the release of our heart, the letting go that allows us to receive the fullness of our life for our own deep well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives. So thank you for your practice, for your presence here. It's uh, just coming up to five o'clock. There's time for some walking meditation. Then there'll be supper at 5.15, or light dinner. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.